0: the Champlain Society. My name is Kenna Turcott, And my name is Greg Marshalden. And we're at the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto.
1: For many years, Valerie Koronek has been a member of the Department of History at the University of Saskatchewan, where she joins us today. Originally from Toronto, she has made the prairies her home, the exact opposite of my own life. Her book, Prairie Fairies, A History of Queer Communities and People in Western Canada, 1930-1985, to 1985, was published in 2018 and is part of the University of Toronto Press Series of Studies in Gender and History.
0: Valerie, welcome to Witness to Yesterday.
2: Thanks very much. It's my pleasure to be here today.
0: First, let me ask you, what spurred you to write this book?
2: Well, it's a very long book. It's a cute story, a post-it note. In fact, when I got my job here, a colleague of mine, Gary Hansen, gave me a post-it note and said, these two individuals would interest you. You should look them up. And so at the end of my first year, after kind of interesting year of learning the ropes, living out here and, and getting my courses all in order and offered, I checked out Neil Richards, whose name was on the post-it note, and I met Neil and what a fantastic individual. Neil told me that he donated, quote, a bit of stuff to the Provincial Archives of Saskatchewan and he thought I'd be interested in looking at that collection. And when I went to the Provincial Archives, I realized that Neil had donated a vast archive covering all gay and lesbian organizations and cultural material from the 1970s through to the present, and it had really never been touched by any other academic before. And so this was like a gold mine steps from my office. And so that's what spurred me to write this book, is discovering all this wonderful material that I had no idea had existed when I got my job out here.
1: Valerie, I was very interested in the fact that you used the word fairies and queer rather than terms such as gay and lesbian in the title and subtitle of your book. Just tell us why you did that.
2: The reason for the use of of the word fairies and queer is twofold. Fairies, because it's a term that people actually used in the time period of the 30s and 40s, and obviously rhyming with prairies made for a very memorable title. So it's an acknowledgement of those gay men who were called fairies or themselves called themselves fairies. But I use the word queer because it offers a broader context and sweep for not only people who would identify in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s as gay and lesbian, but also people who were actors or participants in these worlds, but would never have identified themselves as gay and lesbian. And that's particularly true for two cohorts. So people sort of prior to the 1950s for whom the use of those terms would have been completely anachronistic, although the term lesbian did exist. But in the 60s and 70s, where we have this tendency to think that everybody then had the opportunity to identify as gay and lesbian and that everyone widely understood those terms, there were still people out here who were very resistant to identifying themselves as gay or lesbian for a host of reasons, and yet were engaged in these worlds. Participants at dances had lovers. Some of them were married to members of the opposite sex and participated in these worlds, and others just refused to openly identify identify themselves and so queer offered me an, a way to capture all that activity which is really important because all of these individuals were part of these worlds in the prairies and to leave them out would have done a disservice to historicizing those worlds.
0: Mhm. So I was fascinated by the primary sources you used. The Champlain Society was established in order to protect and disseminate original documentary history. What was the most revealing source that you found? And if you had to pick a single document that most altered your own perspective while researching this book, what would that be?
2: Well this is a trick of historians to pick single document that's actually a vast repository of documents. So I'm going to do that. I guess the single document for me was the discovery of the Manitoba Gay and Lesbian Oral Interview Project. And that's a collection of 50 interviews that were done in two stages in Winnipeg in 1990 and 1992. And so I was told about those interviews and their existence, the Provincial Archives of Manitoba, and within the Rainbow Reading Room at, in Winnipeg, which was the Gay Community Centre. And um, so I started to listen to tapes and read transcripts, and I was given unfettered access to that. And I discovered people that really had led these marvellous lives in the 30s and 40s and had spoken candidly about them. And that collection of interviews, those documents, really unleashed the opportunity to write about gay life in Winnipeg in the thirties and forties And without kind of equivocation, without some of the ways in which I've had to sort of couch those materials when I talk about Saskatchewan queer existence prior to the 50s and 60s. And so that was really eye-opening about what went on in Winnipeg, how people structured their lives, where they went to find other gay men, because this is largely a gay male world that was captured in those interviews. They didn't interview very many women. And that was really a turning point for me in realizing that the book wouldn't just look at the 50s. 60s and 60s and 70s, it would be able to go as far back as the
1: 1930s. I was particularly struck by the story of Nan Mackay. Is that how it's pronounced? Yes, Mackay. Yeah, because I lived in northern Saskatchewan for a number of years, and all of the Mackays were were pronounced Mackay, and it was Mackay in the south, and that was always my distinguishing point. But she was born in 1892 Mm -hmm. in Fort La Northwest Territories. And uh, she was a Métis woman. Uh, She attended the University of Saskatchewan. She became an accomplished student and sportswoman. Can you describe her life to us as well as this remarkable photo album Mm -hmm. that she left? And in fact, you used one of the smaller photos as your book cover.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Nan McKay is one of my favorite people in the book for the richness of her life and for the gift that she left us, queer scholars, feminist scholars, with that photo album. So the photo album was donated by her niece within the last 10 years or so to the University of Saskatchewan Archives and I'm really grateful to the family for doing that and for not removing some of the photographs that were in it because some families would have removed some of the images because they would have been worried about how they might be misinterpreted so the photo album captures her life on campus as an undergrad she lived in residence, she had a very fulfilling social and sporting circle, she played hockey she was into curling, she played every sport basically but she also was in Involved in drama and journalism, edited the student yearbook. So she was a real striver. And the image I used on the cover is a photo of her and Hope Weir taken outside of one of the university residences, we think, in nineteen fifteen, and they're embraced in a kiss in broad daylight, and you can see the shadow of a photographer, another woman, towards the side of the photograph. And so You know, we're always hamstrung queer scholars by the lack of evidence for these earlier time periods where we'll say, well, somebody never married, they were involved in sports, they led this kind of independent existence, traveled the world, maybe shared a house with another single, in quotation marks, woman. And so we're always a little bit constrained for how far we can push that. So that photograph, while it doesn't conclusively prove she was a lesbian, it does signal something about her life, particularly that it was taken in broad daylight by another female student. And so it indicates some of the possibilities that women had at the University of Saskatchewan for crafting a new life for themselves. But she's a very interesting person because she's sort of got this marvelous Saskatchewan history. You're right, Greg. She comes from the North. She's from a Métis family. Um, She attends a private girls' boarding school in Prince Albert called St. Albans Ladies College And one of the people she's in classes with there is Christina Murray, the daughter of Walter Murray, president of the University of Saskatchewan. She wins an entrance scholarship to the U of S, and then she basically never leaves. She graduates in 1915 during the war. She stays on to do a whole series of tasks that just couldn't simply be done, given the contribution of students and faculty on the U of S campus to the First World War effort. And she gets a job in the university library as the assistant librarian, and she retires in 1959. So she really has this kind of storied career here, but never married, lived with her sister, and continued to sort of be this passionate sports person. So really kind of interesting window into what female students at the U of S, their lives might have been like, and how she structured her life, which was a very respectable sort of professional portrait. As an adult woman, but that, that glimpse into those university years suggests, you know, other aspects of her life that might have gone unremarked upon if we hadn't had that photo album.
1: Now, your book covers just over a half a century from 1930 to 1985. Mm-hmm. Obviously, much changed in those years, but how would you compare the scale of change to what has occurred since 1985?
2: Right. It's a good question. I, I stopped in 1985 because of the AIDS epidemic, which dramatically changes activism and advocacy for gay and lesbian people, not only in the prairies, but across North America. So in that time period, we see all of the various kind of generalist gay and lesbian clubs and organizations devoting themselves almost full time to AIDS work and AIDS advocacy. So post-1985, the pace of change is dramatic, first because of AIDS and all the visibility that sheds on sort of a, you know, silent majority of people who had managed to fly under the radar screen and now we're dying in droves in the arts in theater in acting and these very kind of visible professions so it really revealed how many queer people particularly men, were kind of, you know, hiding in plain sight for lack of a more sophisticated phraseology. But the second dramatically different change that happens post-1985 concerns in Canada, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, so that Canadian Constitution, as most people know, was patriated, repatriated in 1982, and the Charter takes effect in 1985, and so from 1985 onwards, there's a series of important legal cases and litigation and what are called charter challenges that would offer gay and lesbian Canadians much more legal rights culminating in marriage in 2005. And so from a legal perspective, there's a dramatic improvement in people's existence. I think that's often oversimplified as a dramatic improvement period, which isn't necessarily true. It's still dependent on class and race and where you live and sort of the social context because the educational piece, the social context hasn't really kept up with some of that legal change. I think there's still work to be done there in terms of educating and improving The lives of gay and lesbian, queer people, transgendered people, all the stats on suicide and various issues, health issues would indicate that we still have a long way to go before we could claim that queer people in Canada are treated equally. But on paper, legally, there's much more equality out there
0: well that's uh, that that actually leads me to my next question uh valerie you you focus on the five prairie cities of Winnipeg, Saskatoon, mm-hmm. Regina, Edmonton, and Calgary. What were the major differences between these cities in terms of gay culture um were they similar to the larger cities like such as San Francisco, New York, or even Vancouver and Toronto during the years in question uh that's
2: a that's a, that's a good question um you know they were both. They're both similar and different, so let me talk about the similarities. Um, There's a lot of similarities in these time periods about the types of organizations that are created because of the just explosion in queer publishing and, in particular, in queer activism. And one of the hallmarks of this time period is that various activist groups or newsletters, or news magazines, or journals that are formed, have these kind of reciprocal policies where the body politic um, takes a subscription to an American periodical like The Advocate, and so they agree to share their resources back and forth. So basically, no money changes hands, they just share um, subscriptions. And so these kind of policies mean that Even if you're a member of um, Saskatoon gay organization, you would have access to not only materials from your home region, the prairies, that might have been produced in Winnipeg or Edmonton or Saskatoon, but you have access to the body politic from Toronto and you have access to the advocate. At the same time, a significant cohort of gay and lesbian people are traveling to the United States and they're traveling to these more liberal or larger gay and lesbian centers. And so they bring a lot of that information and experiences back to their hometowns and they try to recreate on a smaller scale, some of the activities there. They can of course never recreate um, the gay ghettos such as they would be established in Toronto and Montreal, San Francisco, for instance, that was just not feasible, but they do import some of these kind of cultural models or activist models. So where they're different is that between the five Prairie cities, there was a very clearly different kind of culture for gay and lesbian people in terms of the groups that were formed, whether they were just uh, community-run clubs and social spaces and and, um, perhaps activist organizations, whether they tended to be focused more on cultural activities. So in this time period that I was looking at, Saskatoon was the most activist city of all five. Winnipeg tended to focus uh, on a lot of cultural production, so... Magazines, radio programming, TV shows, coming out TV on the Winnipeg Cable Channel starting in the early 80s and running through 700 episodes. That's extraordinary. Um, Edmonton tended to be focused more on social services through their gay and lesbian organization less activism. Um, Calgary and Edmonton had more commercial bar space than the other cities, given their size in large part. And Regina tended to focus primarily on their gay and lesbian club, Um, didn't really develop much activism there. And a lot of anxiety in Regina about activism and about being openly identified as gay or lesbian, as there was in Calgary. So we see a range of comfort level with activism, a range of comfort with being out in the community, Um, And then all this kind of explosion of cultural activity in Winnipeg, which was extraordinary. So
0: why were these organizations so crucial?
2: Well, these organizations are important because they offered people designated gay and lesbian space. So it's hard in this day and age to wrap one's mind around how difficult it was to get information. People have any question about anything now and they Google it and they find an answer. It might not be the right answer, but they find some information. In this time period, most of these cities and most of these organizations would battle to get just a listing in the phone book, the ability to put a sign outside, the ability to sell some of their material, the ability to place an advertisement in the newspaper. So there was a real difficulty at getting space that was designated for gay and lesbian people. And that was the number one challenge everyone faced. Where do I find other people like me? So the creation of these gay and lesbian clubs in the prairies, starting in Calgary in 1969 and then Edmonton and then the rest of the prairie cities, really was dramatically and a dramatic improvement, I should say, for people living in those cities because now they had a place to go and word of mouth spread about these places. And so what it does is it brings people opportunities for socializing which is really important. And from that socializing comes the formation of some identity politics. Who are we as a group? What unites us? What separates us, particularly between lesbians and gay men, but not only on along class lines, along racial lines. And then for significant minority of people who are involved in forming those organizations and perhaps then forming activist groups, that identity And that kind of cohesion as a sense of community would lead to activism in those five cities. And so it's a really important trajectory from having no designated space to a social space to the opportunity to use that social space to create community and potentially activists.
1: And how powerful and influential were these activist groups uh, in the 70s and 80s and 90s? Uh, but particularly in the 70s and 80s, the period that you deal with uh, Mm -hmm. in the prairies relative to the rest of Canada, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver?
2: That's a great question, and it's one that really is the pivot point of the second and third sections of the book because at the time period that I was looking at, those prairie organizations and prairie activism that have been largely forgotten for a whole host of reasons, and including that we haven't written about them, but also that many of those actors are now no longer with us. They were intimately involved and integrally involved in the Canadian national gay and lesbian movement. That was a very small movement of individuals. I've quoted someone in the book who says at one point, probably you could fit all of the gay and lesbian activists in Canada in, in a hotel room. So we're not talking about a huge group of individuals. But the prairies was very connected with that. So for about eight years, they had a series of national conferences. They rotated around the country. Three of those eight to ten conferences were held in Western Canada, and Winnipeg held the second one. So all these actors knew about the prairies. Saskatoon had created this marvelous kind of gay activist cultural event called metamorphosis in the uh, fall held on Thanksgiving weekend. And that attracted people from across the country. It was written up in Toronto's Body Politic, which claimed to be the national gay activist news journal in Canada. And people came from all over to attend that. And they brought entertainers in from as far away as San Francisco. And so in a way... We see the prairies at various junctures leading the rest of the country, coming out TV in Winnipeg. That was a leader long before we would have Pride TV and other such things, coming out TV on the air, you know, people able to watch it from the the comfort and safety of their homes. That's a huge innovation. And so at a couple of junctures, we actually see delegates coming from Toronto or coming from Vancouver to check out what people are doing in Saskatoon and to see if they can emulate a similar structure in Vancouver in 1977, which is kind of astonishing. We have a tendency to think of these things the other way, that Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal will be the most advanced and then eventually this kind of activity will trickle out to the regions. Well, in fact, in this case, the regions are active contributors and uh, in some cases, leaders.
1: Do you have plans for another book on uh, the same topic or a similar topic and what kind of research would you like to see done in this area?
2: Uh, Uh, Well, that's an interesting question. There's so much scope for more work to be done on this topic. So what I'd like to see done are some interviews with Two-Spirit Indigenous people talking about their experiences, because that would be a very different kind of perspective on queer life in the prairies that we currently don't have. And we don't really have an interview base to draw on either as scholars. So that's something I would definitely like to see in the short term. I would like somebody to write that 1985 to present history, it would be very different than the one I've written. I don't know if that's necessarily my project, but I think that would be useful. It would be useful to write about the history of AIDS organizations in the prairies and in particular Saskatoon for what light they shed on prairie, you know, sort of uniqueness in terms of race and class and politics. But in terms of myself, where I'm going next is that I'm taking a break from from prairie queer history, and I'm actually fascinated by the passage of same-sex marriage laws in Canada and of the ways that Canadian marriage laws and access to same-sex marriage in Canada was part of propelling a worldwide movement for same-sex marriage acquisition. We have thousands of people, foreign couples coming to Canada in 2005, 2006 to get married in Toronto and Vancouver in particular. And a very important small cohort of those individuals will go back to their home countries, whether it's Scotland, England, Ireland, France, Italy, South Africa, Hong Kong, Israel, to name a few, and the United States, of course. We'll go back to those countries with Canadian marriages. And a small group of them go back and say, okay, I have a marriage from Canada. It's a legally valid marriage in Canada. And I want this country to recognize those rights. And they press those claims for a host of reasons, sometimes for inheritance reasons or estate planning, succession taxes, sometimes because of children, sometimes just out of a sense of injustice that they want their country to recognize them. And so I'm really fascinated at that kind of Canada's role in this international movement for same-sex marriage, which hasn't been written about much, and the way in which these kind of activist couples use fairly open access to same-sex marriage in Canada because there was no residency restriction to press rights claims in their home country. So that's where I'm going next.
0: Well, Valerie, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing You're very this. welcome. This is, this is a, sh- a really interesting history, and thank you for sharing. Our guest today was Valerie Koronek. We talked about her new book, Prairie Fairies, A History of Queer Communities and People in Western Canada from 1930 to 1985, published by the University of
1: Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. This podcast is made possible by the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L. R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings.
0: This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University and was produced by Heather Go and Lily Robbins. We look forward to joining you.